Welcome to the Thriving Artist Podcast, a feature of the Clark Hewlings Fund for Visual Artists. The Clark Hewlings Fund exists to provide training, introductions, and funding for working artists to turn working artists into thriving artists. I'm Daniel Degree, your host. Despite having 200% more education, less than one-third of working artists fully support themselves with their art. The difference is proper business training, which the Clark Hewlings Fund solves with educational fellowships, digital education, and in-person learning. You can have an exponential impact on working artists and our economy with a monthly donation that funds CHF's educational programming and this show. Your investment does not buy an artist a fish, it buys the fishing rod. So give small at clarkhewlingsfund.org impact. Now, our guest today is Stephanie Birdsall. Stephanie is a painter who has exhibited at the Royal Academy Summer Exhibition in London and the National Arts Club in New York. She has received over 60 awards in national and international juried exhibitions, including Best in Show at the Bridgeport Museum of Arts and Science. Her work is in the permanent collections of the Museum of the Everglades, the Sonoran Desert Museum in Tucson, and she has a one-woman show at the Florida Museum of Art and Culture. When she isn't traveling to paint en plein air, she teaches painting workshops and is the co-producer of two DVDs. Stephanie, welcome to the show. Thank you, Daniel. I'm happy to be here. Now, can you take a minute to tell us just a little bit more in your own words about how you got started painting and when it became a career? Um, I was one of those people that never wanted to do anything else. So I grew up in Atlanta, Georgia, went to school for two years in the States and wanted a more traditional education and went to London and spent five years there studying. And when I came back, I did a lot of miscellaneous jobs, painted all the way through. And then a few years ago, something just clicked in and I've been painting full time ever since. Uh, Did you learn painting through uh, some school classes or studies or non-traditional methods? What what gave you your artistic ability? I actually think artistic ability comes with hard work, but I have taken a lot of workshops and they've been amazingly beneficial. I mean, you can get, so many of us don't get what we want. In the end, the art school that I went to didn't give me the education that I wanted, but I've really learned so much in the last probably 15 to 20 years taking workshops. So what was the turning point when you knew that your primary work had to be art versus, say, a sideline, a hobby? Daniel, I know this sounds crazy, but it's what I always wanted to do. It was never, it never felt like a hobby to me. It always felt very serious, and it was what I intended to do with my life, probably my whole life. How much time then, Stephanie, between that sort of desire taking shape in terms of actually making art and before it became a reality that it was your primary career? What What was the length of that trajectory? I'm trying to think about that. I actually raised four kids, so that definitely cut into my time. But I painted the whole time. I mean, that's the thing. I never quit painting, even if it was just an easel set up in my kitchen. But I probably got my first actual studio 20 years ago. What was the original business plan? The, the thing that made it a business versus something you did other than as a business? You know, I think that I reached a point where I felt a confidence with my work at that point. I was working in pastel. And I realized that by doing children's portraits and animal portraits and things that I could actually get paid for it. So I found a subject matter that I felt confident with. And I think that was probably the missing link instead of just painting everything, although I did and I did a lot of plein air. I actually found something that had a personal purpose for people. You know, they'd hire me to paint their dogs or their children or, you know, a tennis player getting her award. I think the subject matter clicked in for me. 
Why plein air painting in particular? Uh, it seems that you're known for that. I'm curious, what, what is the motivation? I just love being outside and painting. It seems very pure to me, and the light, the time of day that I paint, which is either morning or early evening, late afternoon, is just really beautiful light. And I'm very involved with nature. I love it. In the studio, I paint flowers. So I like the sort of organic thing about the light and the subject matter, and I just have to tell you, it's so much fun. Now, you belong to a painting group, the Putney Painters, under the tutelage of Richard Schmidt. And, of course, he's the eminent realist. How does uh, the group work, and what is the benefit of belonging to the group? The Putney Painters is probably the most supportive art group I've ever heard of or been involved in. The other thing that is amazing is it's not competitive. We're not all trying to outdo each other or feel concerned if someone got an award or has a show that we don't. We support. They're all different levels in it. And we really support each other. And some of us are full-time painters, and there are a few that are not that would, that would like to be. And it doesn't make any difference. Everybody's equal in it. So what is Richard Schmidt's influence on the group in particular? Well, Richard actually put the group together maybe 16 years ago when he moved to Vermont, and he enjoys painting with people. So he invited a few people to paint with him, and it just grew. And so you, it's something that basically... He or the group, he or in conjunction with the group, invites you to become full-time. I commuted to Vermont for a long time from Tucson whenever I could to paint with the group. And one of my reasons for moving to Connecticut and Vermont four years ago was to be able to paint with them full-time. So, Stephanie, is the group still being led by the original members, or have newer members become more integral to the group? It's both. There's still original members there, and there are newer members who are integral. See, I think everyone is integral to this group because we consider ourselves equal. And again, very supportive. If you're a new member, you're just as much supported as an older member is. And we really try and help each other. So you've worked under, you know, several different people, Doug Dawson, Albert Hendel, Raymond Kelly. Do you still see them as mentors as well? Not so much, although they're certainly friends. But I would say that Richard and his wife, Nancy Gusick, have been my primary members over the last 12 years. And I've also worked closely with uh, Sherry McGraw and David LaSalle. And they're wonderful people, and they've given me a lot of input. So uh, who or what has developed your art the most? Is that Richard, uh, or is that some other influence? I have to tell you, Daniel, that I think we all develop our art the most. We learn from each other. When you're around master painters, you know, you, you can't help but learn from them, especially when they're giving you tips or doing some demonstrating. Or, you know, sometimes we get to watch Richard paint, which is just amazing. And I learn from him every time I see him paint. But it's really putting in the miles because if you don't practice it, I don't think you grow. What about influence on developing your business skills? Obviously, to be commercially successful, you have to do more than just paint. Uh, what has caused you to develop those? Well, I think the initial desire to be to want to paint full time, you know, I started with galleries and the the gallery situation grew. And then being at different plein air events and meeting people and becoming collectible. And then also social media now is amazing. But you have to plan, you know, one has to plan in advance the shows you're going to be in, what you're going to submit to, you need to feed your galleries. So I really look at it like a job. There's a, a certain romance associated with the plein air movement. Is that 
mystique actually utilized in marketing and sales of the art? You know, that's an interesting question. I think there, there are collectors that particularly like plein air and go to the events and watch the artist paint. And the caliber of painter at the plein air gr- groups now, at the, the events is just off the charts. There are amazing paintings happening. And I think people get involved in that because they get to watch them going on. And of course, if they like the painting, they have the opportunity to buy it. I'm just trying to think about the romance part of it. There's something very romantic in walking on a, 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 a beach at seven in the morning and having your feet in the cool sand and painting as the sun's coming up. Or, you know, being able to travel around the world and take your paints with you and record it in a painting as opposed to a camera. I think there's a romance to that. I also have to keep saying it's very hard work, but it's worth it. Well, now, how do you, you talk about the work, you know, first, let's talk about the painting versus managing your career. How do you manage your career? How, how are the paintings made available for sale, for instance? I have four galleries that I'm very loyal to and think are fabulous. And then I get invited to different invitationals. And then I also post things on Facebook and Instagram. What's the biggest driver? Is it uh, of sales specifically? Is it galleries, competitions, uh, direct marketing through social media? You know, I use social media to very often support my galleries or the events I'm in. So let's just say I'm sending a painting to Saxon, Denver. I will likely post it on Facebook or Instagram prior to sending it. Very often I sell them, but then they're going, they're already committed to the gallery. So my collector has to buy it from the gallery because I'll post it and say it's going to such and such a show or somebody will contact me and I'll tell them what gallery to get it from. I do sell directly sometimes, but I feel like the galleries are important. I know a lot of people think they're becoming obsolete, but I love them. And I think they're an opportunity for people to see work in person that you don't see online. It's different when you can actually walk in front of a painting and fall in love with it. You may fall in love with something online as well, but there's an impact to me in walking in front of and getting to study a really beautiful painting. And I mean, I grew up with parents that took me to museums. So I've been, I've been in love with painting all my life. And there's, there's the feeling of awe that I personally get when I'm standing in front of something really beautiful. And as an artist, it's also a challenge to try and figure out how they did it. But I think it's just being visual. I love my galleries and I love the social media too. So I try and make them support each other. I was going to say, it sounds like you have uh, a kind of a symbiotic relationship. You don't rely on the gallery to do all of the promotion. Obviously, you're reaching out and doing things in social media, uh, but you don't rely solely on uh, direct-to-market sales, at least at this point. Um, the gallery plays a pivotal role in your plan, so it sounds like you have some sense of how to weave these things together. When it comes to the galleries, you talked about you have four that you're really loyal to, et cetera. How do you decide who represents your work? Uh, have you said no to any galleries? Are there, is there a, a screening process? I have said no to galleries, but one of the things that I really want to say to people that are getting started is it's really important to find the right gallery because galleries play to different collectors. And there are a lot of different levels of collectors. And for instance, you wouldn't find one of my traditional peony paintings in an abstract gallery. It would be out of place and they would not be attracting the collectors that want to collect me. And I remember when my very first gallery was a long time ago. And I was just so excited to be in a gallery that I said, yes, of course, they didn't sell me. And looking back at that now, I know that they, 
they loved my work and they wanted it. And I was flattered and excited and thought this was going to be, you know, my kickoff, but they weren't the right gallery for my work. They did not attract the type of people that were going to come in and buy my work. And I believe that an artist has a very special relationship with their gallery. And for me, I really, really enjoy my gallery owners. We're honest with each other. Um, I support them and they support me. And I've, I've been with these galleries for a while now. And so we have a great working relationship. But I don't think one should go in a gallery just to get in a gallery. But having said that, it's also a way to start building your resume. So if you're starting out, potentially you could go in anywhere, but you need to be conscious that they may not be selling you. And I just think it's important to find a gallery that your work looks like it belongs in. Well, so, you know, obviously that rules out desperately seeking galleries uh, just to have galleries. It's got to be a good fit is what you're talking about. I think successfully it does. But having said that, if you're just getting started and you want a gallery on your resume, you might end up doing that. But, but at the same time, one needs to be aware that it might not be the right fit. Is that confusing? No, uh, but you don't seem to treat the gallery as though they are responsible for all business marketing and sales operations of the company. So let me ask you this, uh, what takes more effort for you, the, the business or the creation of the art itself? That's a tough question. In a perfect world, all I would do is paint. I wouldn't be doing the business part, but I don't think our society is like that anymore. I mean, ideally, I'd have someone potentially handling it all for me, and all I would ever do is paint. But things move so fast, especially with social media, that you have to keep on top of it to keep in front of people. See, I wonder about that. Uh, you know, not to push back a little bit, but I hear a lot of artists say that. In a perfect world, I wouldn't have to do anything but paint. In a perfect world, I could only sculpt. And I, I think, well, in a perfect world, all I'd do is watch TV. Someone else would go to my job for me, and, you know, in a way. Yeah, and, yeah. You know, but I, I think, yeah. do we really want that world? Do we want, and, and this is an, you know, an open question, kind of uh, you know, hypothetical, but... Uh, I wonder, you know, Stephanie, do we want a world in which the artist only paints and never reaches out to the audience or never, do we want an artist that is sort of the, the, uh, the isolated, separate person from society that we never even see, that doesn't step out into the market and compete? Or do you think it maybe makes a stronger artist or, or a more resilient one um, if they do uh, channel some of the business effort through their own hands? Well, I, th- I mean, I, I agree with you on that. I think it does because then you are responsible for what's going on in your life. I think you have to be involved in it. I mean, when we say all I would do is paint, that for me means all I would do is paint. But yes, I would go to shows. I would go to openings. I would go to events. I would be out there socially. And I would still post things probably on Facebook, but I wouldn't feel oh my God, I have to go do this now. There are times when I really want to work on a painting, but I know I've got to go do something. I know I've got to submit something. I know I've got to post something. I know, and there are times I would rather just paint. And then there are times, I mean, for me, I try and do my business after the sun goes down because I want the light. I paint by natural light, so I want the light as long as possible. So I try not to break unless I have to, or I've got a deadline or something during the day when it's painting time. That makes sense. I mean, you know, and I don't think, obviously, anybody really wants to be the Emily Dickinson of 
of painting. You know, we find out that there were paintings in a room somewhere after she's long gone. You know, the, everybody has to the 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 rock band has to go on tour. The the author has to do book signings, though we wish they wouldn't. And the uh, <laughs> we couldn't stop him from signing the books. Right. <laughs> you know, he just showed up at Barnes and Noble. But you know, the, you know what I mean. There's a there's a a level of it that's glamorous and it's you know clinking glasses, and there's a level of it that's work. And uh, I wonder, you know, you do something besides painting, though. You have DVDs on painting. You teach workshops. You embrace other opportunities. Why get involved with anything beyond the painting itself then? You know, a few years ago, someone asked me to teach. I was so nervous you can't imagine. I had complete stage flight before going into this class. But once I got in there, I realized that I've got so much to share with people and that I enjoy it. And I love seeing people get those aha moments and take off and learn. And so it's actually become a passion for me. I, I paint more than I teach, but I really enjoy the teaching. And I find that I'm becoming a better artist because when I'm showing someone how to do something or talking to them, I need to know what I'm doing and walk my talk. So it's, I think it's made me a better painter. How did you start getting students for this? I mean, you somebody asked you to teach, but it, obviously it took off from there. What drove the next generation then of of audience? I mean, it started, I was doing a demo at the um, International Association of Pastel Societies for one of the vendors whose product I use. And then another vendor I started talking to, and I really liked their product. And they asked me to go teach. I can't think of what they're called. One of those situations where you have three-hour classes over four days. They're, they're conventions, really. And uh, from there, I don't know. I just People liked my work and wanted to learn to do what I do. So I started getting invited to teach. And I just made a third DVD, and I get great response on my DVDs. And then people that see them want to take a workshop with me. Are these early career, mid-career? Where, where are the students in their careers? They are all over. I get people in their 20s, and I have a couple of that are 80 and just fabulous. And the level, the levels are all varied. You know, I think as a true artist, one always wants to be open to learning. And so if I can get something from somebody else's workshop, I would go take it in a second. If they have something that I want to know how to do, I would go take a workshop or I'd buy their DVD. For a minute, I, when you said they're all over, I thought you meant their careers are all over. <laughs> as a result of my classes they are no longer no, artists no. to this day <laughs> that would have been fun <laughs> it's over for you yeah. right exactly no daniel they're just all different levels some are getting started i get a lot of people that i think are intermediate or top of inter intermediate and they just need a little tweaking to get to the next level and that's so much fun to see people grow now, um, galleries around the United States show your work, obviously, and I, I think a lot of artists struggle to make that happen. Uh, and you talked about the four galleries um, that you have, but was it hard to expand your reach and get representation in different regions like that? Well, this is one of the things that those plein air events do for you. You travel around the country a lot, and so you get to meet people in different regions. And sometimes you change galleries. One gallery in an area isn't working for you, so you go to another. But I think I've met a lot of people through the plein air events that I used to do. I don't do as many now. I'm doing more studio work, but 
I think the plein air events probably were a great beginning or, or, or a great move upwards for me as far as exposure goes. So what do you remember as your first important sale? If I tell you, you're going to laugh. It wasn't really a sale and maybe we shouldn't go there. But when I was in school in London, I got an etching into the Royal Academy Summer Exhibition and I was renting an apartment with a bunch of friends and my landlord wanted to buy the painting. But Instead, he traded me a mattress for it. That's excellent. Uh, <laughs> it's very bohemian, too. <laughs> and sometimes you just need a mattress. <laughs> well, so, you know, yeah, or you need, I don't know. I mean, I've traded a lot of work in my life. It's wonderful. I mean, I used to trade work with a landscaper when I lived in Tucson. Which seems, uh, obviously, for plein air art, uh, quite appropriate. Well, he actually wanted my flowers, but whatever. I mean, I think trades want... I think you have to get your work out there for people to see it. So the plein air events or trading, whatever it is. I mean, now I paint, I paint wherever I go. I spend a lot of time in Rome. I paint there. You meet people. They see you. They want to know who you are. They want to know what your work is. So you're talking about, you know, you need to get your work out there. You need to have people recognize you and, and be familiar with your work. But I'm curious how you maintain engagement with clientele, uh, once they buy a piece. So if somebody buys one work, and, and just one work, what happens after that? Do you put them on the email list? What What is it that you do to maintain the engagement after the first sale? Well, I think, first of all, through galleries, I usually don't know who bought my work. But very often, if I'm actually going to the gallery opening, I meet the collectors. But if, if I've met them through a gallery, I feel that they remain the gallery's contact. So that's something the gallery doesn't share with you, the contact information of you're not tracking who bought the work after, after the sale, necessarily. I mean, a lot of times I know at this point who's buying my work because I've known them for so long. Like, for instance, I have collectors in Denver, and I think they bought, I met them at, um, I think it was a Rocky, it was a Rimpaps, the Rocky Mountain Plein Air Painters, and I painted with them for a while and still do. And I met some of these people at a paint out in Winter Park, Colorado, and I ended up being in a gallery in Denver, and they had collected me at the plein air event, and then they collected me through my gallery, and now they've become friends as well, but still, almost all my work out there is going through the Saks Gallery, so they'll see my work at Saks Gallery and usually buy through them. Sometimes I'll get an, an email that someone tells me they bought my work. But I mean, they're not, um, I mean, the gallery is not sending you the contact list. You know, here's, here's uh, this quarter's purchasers, their names, their email addresses that bought, here's what they bought and how much it was, you know, that, that stuff. And, and that's an interesting opportunity because obviously as a, a, a marketing professional, immediately I say, oh, interesting, really? <laughs> because, you know, I want to, if I'm, Mark, if you you had mentioned earlier, it'd be nice if somebody did all this for me. If I was doing all that for you, I'd be I'd be saying I will have this. I want a quarterly report. I want those contact pieces. I'm going to nurture those as leads so that they so I grow their interest in my latest events and my my newer works, and I don't just leave it to the you know that would be my next step, and I would track secondary sales. The kind of your agreement with your gallery is generally that they represent you. And so since they represent you, your clients are their clients because they're really the clients of the gallery. But I know what you're saying, too. I mean, I know exactly what you're saying. 
But I, I don't know. I wouldn't know how to bridge that gap. It's sometimes if a gallery asks for a way to contact me, the galleries will give them my information. So I, I want to switch gears and ask you a little bit about collecting because uh, so first you're a plein air painter. Second, you're a member of a group of artists, a, a rather pivotal group. Uh, third, you do teaching and workshops and produce DVDs. And fourth, you are, in fact, an art collector, um, which isn't that surprising. Of course, a lot of artists are. But in our case, we're particularly interested because uh, you have a Clark Hewlings watercolor. And um, I'm curious, you know, how did you acquire that? I'm pretty sure, I have to be honest and tell you, I'm pretty sure I bought it at auction. I can't remember exactly. I've had it for a long time. But Clark Hewlings was an amazing artist. And, and living in the Southwest, I knew his work. So he was on my list of wants. So when this came up, I honestly, I'm trying to look at, um, if I can figure out where I bought it, I don't remember. But I've collected a number of paintings through auctions the big auction houses. And so, I mean, if I'm buying something, it's because I love it or I really respect the artist and what he or she was capable of. And it's something that I want to look at. So, you know, obviously, um, Clark Hewlings did uh, quite a bit of plein air work and is a, a realist and did a lot of Southwestern themes. But uh, was there something in particular about this painting uh, that uh, won you over to it or something in, in particular about Clark's work that won you over to wanting to own one of his paintings besides, you know, sort of just the name, obviously? Well, I mean, for me, it was that his work was fabulous. And to be honest, he had a floral that I'd give anything if I had. It was one of the most beautiful paintings I felt like I'd ever seen. But in general, he it was just a very fine painter. And so because of how I felt about him as an artist, I wanted to own one of his pieces. And the piece I have is very simple. I mean, one of the reasons I love it, it's actually called Valencia. And it's, a, it's an almost monochromatic watercolor, but it's just very strong. So I want to ask you also, um, it sounds like you collect a number of different artists and, and you have a number of different pieces. Uh, does the act of collecting art influence your own painting or influence the way you conduct your, your business as an artist or your professional practice? I'm not exactly sure. I don't think the art of I the things that I collect are things that give me joy to see them every day. I a lot of the things I collect are things that I can learn from or study. I don't think collecting affects me as an artist. I think I think as an artist, if you love other paintings, you can't help but want them. I see things all the time I would love to have because I think they're so fabulous, but I can't have everything. So um, you pick the things that are meaningful to you. Sometimes it's a subject matter. For me, very often, it's the way it's painted. There's something I can learn from it, or I'm just amazed by how they created it. I mean, collecting, for me, I think, had a lot to do, I don't collect as much anymore, but a lot to do with the admiration that I had for the artist and how they painted the painting. We've talked about a number of different topics today. We've talked about, you know, sort of collaboration and you know, your membership in Putney Painters. We've talked about uh, business, marketing and sales, and collaboration with galleries. And we just talked a little bit about collecting. Uh, in the final segment of our show, I want to ask you just a little bit about success. Uh, and of course, you know, everything in the world has been written a, about success. If you want to be successful, work out every day. If you want to be successful, do nothing but your work every day. You know, there's all kinds of conflicting information. Um, but I want to get sort of your take 
So on the su subject of success, let me ask you this first. Are you successful? And, and how do you define success for yourself? I believe I am. I guess that's a yes. One of the big things is that I get to get up every morning and do what I want to do. I mean, I get to get up and walk upstairs to my wonderful studio, which is a converted barn, and paint all day. And then I get paid for it, which helps. But you know what else it is, Daniel? I feel so good when I know that people enjoy my work and what I'm doing. It's like double whammy. I get to paint what I love, and then somebody else gets to love what I painted. That's pretty great. So you're defining success, you know, if I interpret that in my own words, you're defining success in two ways. One is um, the ability to do what you want, have the life you want. And then secondly, uh, it's the ability to connect with other people in a substantive and meaningful way. Uh, have I got that right? I think that sounds good. Now, has that, has that definition of success evolved? Did you, when you first started out, in other words, did you have a different idea of what being a successful working artist would be or should be? Or was it always this? I think for me, it was probably always this. I mean, I have to tell you that I've always been driven to do this. And the only time I'm unhappy is if you keep me away from my easel for too long, really and truly. It's what makes me happy. It's what drives me to do what I do. The teaching is an added benefit, but I think I always just plain wanted to grow up and be a painter and ultimately sell my work to make a living to paint more paintings. So I, I want to tell a little mini story that um, reaffirms what you've, you've said uh, about, you know, the only thing that gets on your nerves is keeping you away from your easel too long. So what the audience doesn't know is at the top of the hour when the show is supposed to start, I have not yet eaten <laughs> and, and I need to eat in order to be on for the show and the delivery person isn't here and I'm, you know, I'm grinding to a halt uh, emotionally and I said, hey, I need five minutes to, to get a yogurt and you said, uh, Stephanie, uh, no, why don't you just take an hour? I, I can go back to my easel. I'll paint. <laughs> it's like you're still capturing daily. I'll paint. You call back now. We'll do the show later. <laughs> so I, right, exactly. I picked up on that right away. I'm like, I just need a yogurt. Just let me have a yogurt. <laughs> no, the painting was a priority. Daniel, I have to tell you that <laughs> getting ready for this, I'm working on a painting that's just, I'm like in the last stretch of it. And so I started, I knew we were at 4.15 and I thought, well, I set my first alarm for 3.15 so I could get ready. Then I kept hitting smooth on the alarm. Then finally I set it for 3.45, then 4 o'clock, then 4.13 because then I needed two minutes to get ready to talk to you. So I was trying to get as much out of it as possible. And when we're off, I'll go back to it. And speaking of which, by the way, I, I think the schnooze button should be called the schmooze button. You know, instead of going back to sleep, I think it yeah, should nurture sure. you in a warm and welcoming way. You know, hey, buddy, you want to get up, don't you? <laughs> the little schmooze would help me. <laughs> that, that would be nice. That, that would be nice. I agree completely. Well, so uh, I want to kind of finish up. I got just a couple more questions. I want to ask, um, you know, I, and this goes back again to um, your teaching, but are there common barriers that artists, we're still on the topic of success. Are there common barriers that artists put up to keep them from succeeding in your view? That's a tough question. I will tell you one of the things that I think is the toughest, toughest is for people 
to become confident. I see a lack of confidence standing in people's way very often. They don't trust what they're thinking. They don't trust what they're painting. And as soon as they get a little bit more confident, it's a huge change. I can tell you when, when Richard invited me to join the Putney Painters, and that was 12 years ago, that was a massive confidence boost for me because it meant that what I was doing was real. And I'm sure that helped me in my outlook and, and where I went with career because somebody believed in me. And I think that we hold ourselves back because we don't think we're good enough. Sometimes that's real and you need to grow, but, but I just think that confidence thing is a big issue for a lot of painters. That's reaffirmed, actually, by um, Ron Whitmore. He did an earlier episode of this podcast with us uh, called Tools of the Trade. And, and uh, I had asked Ron... Um, he runs uh, a series of art supply chains. Ron is great. I love him, and he's a fabulous musician and a great guy. Ron's terrific. You'll be interested in what he said because uh, it, it meshes uh, quite well with what you said. I, I'd asked Ron, in the sh- I'll never forget this, I asked him, what when, when people come into your store uh, to buy art supplies, can you tell which ones are going to succeed and which ones aren't? And he said, yes. And I said, what are the earmarks? And he says, well, it's pretty simple. The person that comes in and doesn't know what they want or why, and they're sort of like, what about this color of blue? Do you think it's okay? And, and they're asking all these questions. He says, those guys, if I had to bet on them, aren't, aren't there yet, or they're not going to succeed, or their careers, uh, unless until they shift. But the people that I know are going to succeed, you know, he's not predicting their whole future, but the, the people that I know are going to succeed, he says, are the ones that come in and they won't have it any other way. They're like, I want that blue, and oh, you're out of stock of this? I'll wait till you get more in, and I want twice as many tubes then because I'm having to wait. They know exactly what they want, why they want it, and they won't take anything less. And that confidence, that knowledge sort of that you're talking about, that awareness and belief in themselves, uh, he says, is the determining factor in how he knows somebody is succeeding. He says he's seen the correlation again and again. I think it's true. I think it's huge. And I think that that's changing a lot with the new painters that are coming up. I think that they seem to have more confidence. There's a lot of serious training going on. and But they, they seem to believe in themselves, in themselves more easily than some of the older painters do especially the people who put it off. You know, they had families or they had other jobs or their parents didn't want them to do it. I was lucky. I had a dad that was a violinist and he backed me all the way in the arts. But I was, I think, unusual. I think when you have support and people that believe in what you're doing, and that can come from a group like the Putney Painters, we believe in each other. I think all that's really, really helpful. And I think Ron's right. You can tell. I have two more questions for you, Stephanie. One is this. What are your current goals as an artist? Well, I have to tell you that one of my current goals is to paint every painting more beautifully. And I wonder if someday I'll actually paint a painting that I'm satisfied with. I want to paint just unbelievably beautiful paintings. I mean, seriously, that's my main goal. I think that's my driving force, is to paint every painting better. I should probably have a financial goal, but I don't really want to have one because I don't want that to get in the way of what I'm going after personally with what I'm doing, what I'm trying to achieve. I'm just going for it right now, Daniel, and they seem to be getting better, and I want to build on each one. I don't know if that's a goal. Well, I I think there's something interesting in what you've said, which is it's one thing to not have confidence in your work. It's another thing to ever truly be satisfied with it. Um, So I think... 
if I could refine my understanding of how you're treating the concept of success, it's not that you are 100% satisfied with everything you produce, uh, but it is that even if you are um, always trying to improve, um, as you know, the Japanese concept of kaizen is always getting better. If if it's even while you're doing that, you still have the confidence to go forward, the confidence in your work and the confidence that it means something. Uh, so I think that's a, a good juxtaposition to kind of leave off on. Uh, I'll ask you one more thing, which is um, how can I learn a little bit more about what kinds of things you teach uh, that are available to the public, um, whether through DVD or live workshops? I generally put my workshops on my on my website, and in fact, I'm about to put them up. I also put everything up on Facebook, and two of my DVDs are on my website right now. I'm trying to link the one that I just did to my website, but it's called Lemons and Leaves, and Lily Doll uh, published it. If you go to my website or Facebook me, you can find out most of it. You've been listening to The Thriving Artist Podcast, a feature of the Clark Hewlings Fund for Visual Artists. For more information on Stephanie Birdsall, visit stephaniebirdsall.com. That's stephaniebirdsall.com. For more information on the Clark Hewlings Fund, visit clarkhewlingsfund.org. To sponsor an artist with your small but impactful gift, visit clarkhewlingsfund.org slash impact. And be sure and follow our podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. Thank you for listening, and thank you, Stephanie. It's been really great having you. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much.